I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa D. Simone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on Moore versus the United States, a major tax case pending before the U.S. Supreme Court. In June 2023, the United States Supreme Court agreed to hear Moore versus U.S., a case that will determine whether a tax implemented under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 is constitutional under the 16th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. At its core, the court will determine whether income realization is a requirement for Congress to impose a tax. In today's episode, we explain issues in the case and what the court's decision could mean for current and future tax laws. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. So I am excited because we're talking about tax, obviously. Yes. But also because we're talking about the Supreme Court. And I don't know if you know this about me, but there was a point in my life when I wanted to be a lawyer. You married a lawyer. I did. He wasn't a lawyer when I married him. That's he true. didn't stay a lawyer for very long. Yeah, he's not one anymore. He did not want to be a lawyer. No, <laughs> <laughs> he was one. Okay. Um, so that makes me want to ask you, other than being the co-host of a tax podcast. Wait, 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 wait. We have to rewind here. Why are you not okay. why are you not a lawyer? Um, it's an excellent question. So I think that I was worried that it would just stress me out too much because like you know, you need to be in the top 10% of your class to get the good internships, to get the good. I mean, I took the ELSA. I was admitted to law schools. Like I was ready to go. But yeah, I think bottom line, I just decided that I was too nervous and under too much stress. And I didn't think that law school was going to help my level of stress and anxiety. So I went and got a job at public accounting instead. And then went into a PhD program, which is completely stress-free. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So I took the easy path. Yeah. Took the easy way out. For sure. So other, okay, now I'll ask my question. Other than being the co-host of a tax podcast, a wildly successful tax podcast, yes. mm-hmm. um, what else did you want to be at one point in your life? I mean, if we're talking me as a kid, I wanted to be an astronaut. Oh, nice. If we're talking about me right now, I just want to be a cheesemonger and be around cheese the rest of my life. Yes. The, the cheesemonger part, I knew I didn't know astronaut. That's a good one. It was until 1986 when the Challenger exploded, and then I did not want to be an astronaut anymore. Fair enough. We're going to talk about this Moore versus the U.S. case. And so we have three goals for today. Okay. We're going to talk about the tax that is at the heart of this case, which is something we call the transition tax, um, new tax that was implemented by the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that tax is. I love talking about the transition tax. It's everybody, TCJA is everybody's favorite. Um, Then we're going to talk about what the specific issue is in this Moore case related to the transition tax, why they're not happy about it. Give me more, more. More, more, more. And then the last thing we're going to talk about is if the Supreme Court decides that this transition tax is unconstitutional, the the thing that's exciting about this case is that it's not just going to stop there, potentially. It's not, potentially, it's not just going to have implications for the transition tax only. It could have some broader implications. We're going to talk about what those might be. So this is going to be a little bit of a speculative episode because we don't know what's going to happen. All right. So why don't you kick us off with a discussion of what this transition tax is that is the heart at the heart of this Moore case. Before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the U.S. asserted the right to tax the foreign earnings of U.S. corporations who were doing business overseas. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking. Generally speaking. There were exceptions to that. But now with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we relinquished that right. We basically say we are no longer going to tax the foreign earnings of U.S. multinationals subject to exceptions. Mm -hmm. Now, to get from the 
old world, which was we claim the right to tax all of those earnings to the new world where we're going to tax none of those earnings, it didn't seem right to allow corporations to just have all of their previously earned foreign earnings go completely tax-free. Yep. And the hiccup here is that they didn't actually pay tax on those foreign earnings until they brought them back to the U.S. So companies just left them overseas forever and ever in endless deferral of this U.S. tax. Okay, so we weren't going to let them get away with that. So we had to impose a transition tax Mm -hmm. to get them from a world where they were going to be taxed on those earnings to a world where they're not going to be taxed on those earnings. So we imposed a tax on the previously untaxed foreign earnings. It was mandatory. You had to pay the tax. So the key point to understand about this tax is exactly what you just said. It was a mandatory tax. Mm -hmm. Even if you didn't bring that money home, you were paying the tax. Yes. And what that means is that this transition tax was taxing potentially unrealized earnings. The U.S. company doesn't actually realize that income until it gets a payment from that foreign subsidiary. Yep. And in this case, you're getting taxed whether you make that payment or not. Exactly. And I can see why Congress wrote the law that way. They wanted people to bring the money home. And so the thinking was, if we tax you on it, you're more likely to bring it home. Sure. You're more likely to have the realization. But like you said, it is not required. And we don't make a distinction. So if you have kept that money overseas, if you're not having that foreign court pay you a dividend, you're still paying the tax, even though you haven't realized the income. And that is the crux of the issue in the Moore case. Exactly. So did this tax, quote unquote, work in terms of encouraging companies to bring the money back? Well, some people would argue yes. So, for example, Apple made headlines for announcing that they were going to bring back $252 billion of cash. They made this announcement pretty much right after the act. Um, They said they were going to bring that money back to make a, quote, sizable investment in the U.S. There is some evidence that it did encourage companies to bring this cash back and invest it in the U.S., which is, I think, what Congress wanted. Mm -hmm. The Joint Commission on Taxation estimated $338 billion in revenue over 10 years from the transition tax. And some academic research by my co-host here and some co-authors Estimate $242 billion in tax among the largest 251 companies. So say more things about that. Okay, so, so exactly. So a couple things to think about here. A, this tax was potentially effective in getting these companies to bring back the, the cash and invest it in the U.S., which we wanted them to. B, it was also potentially effective as a revenue raiser, right? Because we know right. that the TCJA had to be revenue neutral. We needed some revenue. So $338 billion over 10 years is not chump change. No. Um, that paper that I have estimates, like you said, about $242 billion among 251 companies. That suggests that we saw a range of overseas earnings coming back of somewhere between $1.5 and $3 trillion. So that $3 trillion of trapped cash number that we thought was maybe out there, that kind of checks out based on our estimates as well. And just to clarify, it's not that the $3 trillion actually came back to the U.S. It's just that they had to pay tax on that $3 trillion. Thank you for checking me on that because that's the whole point of what we're talking about today. Okay. So that is a nice segue into what all of this conversation about the transition tax has to do with the Moors versus the United States. So let's dig into the facts here. The Moors are two individuals. Yep. They invested in an Indian-based corporation that was formed to assist rural farmers. Sounds nice. Yeah. They owned about 13% of the shares of this Indian corporation. And that makes them 10% owners subject to the transition tax. 
They never received a dividend or any other payments from the company, and that's their argument, that they never realized any income. Instead, the company reinvested all of its earnings in order to grow its business in India. Even though they never received a distribution from the company, the Moors were taxed for their share, their 13% share of the company's reinvested earnings that had never been taxed in the U.S. under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act's transition tax. As a consequence, they owed about $15,000 as a result of the 2017 tax law change. Question for you, Lisa. Why are we making such a big deal over $15,000 of tax? I mean, I'm sure they're paying more than that for the lawyers. That's an excellent point. This problem is a lot bigger than just these two people. All right, so we've checked our first item off the to-do list. We've talked about the transition tax broadly, what it is, and how it applied to the Moors. Now let's get into a little bit of the legal nitty-gritty here and why it is that two individuals are filing for a refund of a measly $15,000 of tax. Okay, since I never wanted to be an attorney, we have to turn to you for the legal nitty-gritty here. What is this all about? Okay. Happy to do it. So basically, what did they do? They paid the $15,000 of tax, and then they filed for a refund, basically arguing that the tax violates the 16th Amendment because it is not imposing an income tax. They're arguing that they had no realization of income, and thus they can't be taxed. So I love this because I'm teaching corporate tax right okay. now. First thing that we talk about is entity choice. And if you are a shareholder in a C-Corp, you don't get taxed unless you get a dividend. True. That's the rule. This is a big fat violation of that rule. They are taxing shareholders on corporate income when they didn't pop, when in this case, the Moore's case, they didn't get a dividend. Right. But there, there are other examples of this out there. Okay. In our tax law. Let me hear it. Okay. Well, remember when I said that before the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, we had a system where the U.S. claimed the right to tax those foreign earnings of U.S. Ah. corporations? Yes. Even if those foreign earnings were not paid back to the U.S.? I mean, the default rule was that we only taxed it when it was paid back. But to prevent companies from just never bringing it back home and reinvesting in passive assets, not really doing anything with those funds, there's this whole provision of the tax code called subpart F. I'm sure you remember all about it. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Subpart F. Okay. So basically a set of anti-abuse provisions targeted at corporations that were not only shifting some of their earnings outside of the U.S. in order to avoid that U.S. tax, but also things like locating their intangibles in low-tax countries and never bringing those earnings back home. So to take, I'm going to say the oomph out of this tax strategy, subpart F required some of those foreign earnings to be taxed anyway, as if the U.S. owners had been paid a dividend, even if no dividend was actually paid. So it's exactly the same situation here. We've got earnings being earned. It's going to be taxed by a U.S. taxpayer, even though the U.S. taxpayer has not actually earned those foreign earnings. They were earned by the corporation, the foreign corporation, but not by the U.S. taxpayer. So you're thinking like a lawyer. Okay. I don't know that that's a compliment. (laughs) I don't either, but 
It's fine. So, but you're thinking like, thank you for insulting me. No, because this is exactly what the opposing side, this is exactly what the treasury argued. Yeah. The Moors went to court and said, we want our $15,000 back because this tax is unconstitutional. You are taxing unrealized income. And treasury said, yeah, but we do that in other situations too. See subpart F. And by the way, you just explained. subpart F has been in place since the 60s. Yeah. So we, this, we did this for over 50 years. Yes. This is not new. Not and nobody new. has complained. Um, I don't know that that is true, but I don't no. believe anybody has filed a lawsuit that has made it to the U.S. Supreme <laughs> everybody's, Court. Everybody's fine. Everybody's happy with it. Okay. Uh-huh. Yes. To be more precise, we're, nobody's won a lawsuit. Let's say that. Yes. Right. So this regime has been in place for 60 years, 70 years, if it, you said it started in the 60s. Yeah. I can do some math sometimes. So this regime has been in place for 60 years and for 60 years, we've just kind of gone along with it. And so for that reason- the district court ruled against the Moors and said, hey, other provisions of the tax code, like subpart F, have been held constitutional over the years. They appealed, and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals affirmed that decision and was like, there's nothing to complain about here. This transition tax is not novel. It's not doing something that we haven't done before. Please take your argument and go someplace else. Okay. Um, All right, so here we are. We've got taxpayers trying to get a $15,000 refund, We've got the district court and the court of appeals going, what is your problem? There's nothing going on here, Mm -hmm. but it is at the Supreme Court. And so the question is, what happens now? Okay. The Supreme Court is going to hear arguments sometime during their docket this year. Um, They typically release their decisions in the summer. So by June of 2024, we should have a decision. Okay. Uh, So the big question is, what is that decision going to be? And in researching this episode, you and I have seen legal scholars outline multiple possibilities. Yes. So first, there's the um, possibility that the courts are going to say that this particular transition tax is unconstitutional, but only with respect to individuals. Interesting. Why would they do that? Well, if we're being honest, individuals were treated worse than corporations under this new code section, under this transition tax code section. And so there's a possibility that... um, the courts would say, okay, individuals, you kind of got a raw deal here. It's unconstitutional as it applies to you. Okay. Um, If they made that ruling, there are some estimates that that would cost the U.S. about $3.5 billion in tax revenue over the next 10 years. Again, when we're talking about the U.S. government dollars, that's not. Yeah, that's not a ton. Okay. Um, The problem is it could be unconstitutional for everyone, including corporations, right? They may not be able to just carve out individuals here as being the ones being wronged. And in that case, tax revenue would decline by an estimated $346 billion over the next 10 years, which would include refunds of the transition tax payments made since the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed. That That's yeah. a larger number. It is. Okay. And if the tax is unconstitutional, including for corporations, then wouldn't that mean we have to go back to subpart F and give everybody back all of the tax that they paid on their subpart F income since the 1960s. Yeah, this doesn't, this feels like a can of worms. Yeah, which is maybe why the Moors themselves or as you have said, their uh, hired gun attorneys um, are trying to make it very clear that this is a very narrow, just transition tax thing and mm-hmm. it doesn't broadly apply to everything else. It's just that as a non-lawyer looking from the outside, it's really hard for me to distinguish 
where this little issue that they're harping on ends and all of these other bigger can of worms to use your language issues begin. Yeah. Once you start pulling on that thread, I mean, yeah. When does it stop? The whole sweater, the Cosby sweater unravels. And so you're, uh, you're raising a really good point, which is that it's not clear whether the Supreme Court is going to listen to them and say it's really just a narrow transition tax issue or if it's going to go beyond the transition tax, like you suggested, and put other tax provisions at risk, including, like you said, subpart F, but also some of our newer uh, taxes. Ooh, I like this. Keep going. Uh, so guilty could be on the chopping block. Okay, so that is one way that we actually do tax the foreign earnings of U.S. corporations, even under the new default rule that we're not going to, okay? Exactly, exactly, logic. Um, and then your favorite and my favorite, the new CAMT, the Corporate Alternative Minimum Book Tax. Can I just register a vote against CAMT as, as a, an can. acronym? I don't like it. It's terrible, okay. uh, 100% terrible. Um, and so if all of those taxes are on the chopping block, then the Tax Foundation estimates total loss revenue of, wait for it, $675 billion over 10 years. This is not going to help our deficit. Uh, no, okay. not remotely. Um, it could also interfere with the U.S.'s ability to implement a global minimum tax under Pillar 2, since that's basically the international community's version of guilty. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that's not good. Um, no, and if, if all of this doesn't sound bad enough, let's go beyond this nerdy, detailed corporate tax mumbo-jumbo. The real elephant in the room, I guess, is that some people speculate that the court only decided to hear this case because mm -hmm. there's not controversy, there's not disagreement, mm -hmm. because they wanted the opportunity to send a signal to Congress what their view is on the constitutionality of any tax on unrealized income, such as? Ah, such as the wealth tax. Exactly. Yes, Democrats have proposed taxes on billionaires that would tax unrealized gains. And any mm -hmm. Supreme Court ruling that says taxes on unrealized income is unconstitutional would make a wealth tax dead in the water. Yep, and now we understand why this little married couple with their $15,000 of tax liability they're arguing over is, is causing a big ruckus. A big ruckus. Okay, so now we are on to the good, the bad, and the ugly. And even though I tried to be optimistic earlier, I think you've this episode has taken it out of me. So I think I don't have anything good to say. So why don't you say something good? I got to talk about subpart F. Okay, all right. It's, you know, fun for me and only me, <laughs> not you or any of our <laughs> listeners. But anytime we get to talk about subpart F, I think, you know, that's, that's a good day because I like to forget about it. And so it's always good to have a reminder that it exists. Yeah, and it actually still exists. We did not get rid of subpart F with the Tax Cuts and no. Jobs Act. It's still around, so that's fun. It's still there. Fun fact. It's good. Um, anything else good you want to say? No, I have no, I'm out. Yeah, nope. Okay. Um, I think the bad thing here, one bad thing that I can think of is that if, even if they make the transition tax uh, unconstitutional just for individuals, we're going to lose some revenue. Yeah. If we make it unconstitutional for individuals and corporations, we're gonna lose a lot more revenue. And as you mentioned, we are a country that is currently in a lot of debt and constantly facing shutdowns because we can't agree on how to fund our operations. I don't think this is the time we wanna be giving up $350 billion of tax revenue. 
And I guess one thing that's kind of interesting about this, and, and maybe it's a bad look for the Republicans, maybe they don't care. This transition tax was passed by a Republican Congress. Mm-hmm. And the people who tend to oppose the wealth taxes and the billionaire taxes tend to be Republicans. Mm-hmm. And so it's like we're willing to, I guess, I guess I do have to give them a pass for consistency, right? They're willing to call a tax that they passed stupid and unconstitutional to prevent Democrats from getting a wealth tax sometime in the future. So I don't know, maybe this is great. Maybe this is inter- maybe this is the internal consistency I've been wanting my whole life. It is some self-policing, right? Yeah. yeah. Okay, look, I found a good. I dug well my done. hand in the flaming pile of garbage and I pulled out a good. I'm impressed. Okay. Do you want to just move on to the ugly? Let's go. Let's go. What, what you and I have been reading is that lots of legal scholars think that this is just a gross example of Supreme Court overreach. Maybe I should say another gross example mm-hmm. of Supreme Court overreach. Um, lots of attorneys didn't think that they would agree to hear the case uh, because you're not going to agree to hear the case just to say we agree with the Ninth Circuit Court. Like there's no right. reason to do that because there was no disagreement. Right. So if there's no disagreement in the lower courts, it's very unusual for the Supreme Court to hear a case. So if they're not going to hear it just to say we agree with you, Ninth Circuit, then the chances are they only agreed to hear it so they could say we don't agree with you, right. Ninth Circuit, and pave the way for some degree of terrible tax policy going forward. Yeah, it's not good. Um, I've also heard concerns that Justice Alito might not be fully independent on this case. So what's going on with that? Yeah, so as, as again, as you and I understand from researching this case, uh, the Moors aren't the real parties of interest. Like, we're not all concerned about them getting their $15,000 back. Uh, it appears that there are some billionaires financing this litigation, that they're the ones who are really interested in the outcome because they want to avoid that billionaire tax. Mm. The Moors are being represented by an attorney named David Rivkin. Mm-hmm. And according to some reporting by The Guardian, it turns out that David Ridkin also represents Leonard Leo. Ah, I recognize that name. Exactly. So if our listeners have been paying attention, we talked about him in our episode on 501c4 organizations. So he's in trouble for um, misdirecting some funds from these tax-exempt organizations. And he has connections to literally all of the advocacy groups that filed briefs with the Supreme Court encouraging them to hear this case. Most directly to your point, he also has a relationship with Justice Alito. Mm. Which is not a great look. So let's say Justice Alito here is not swayed by his relationship with Leonard Leo or any of this. Um, It still doesn't look very good at a time when there have been numerous articles about the, let's call them privileges that certain Mm -hmm. Supreme Court justices have received as a consequence of some of their friends and acquaintances. Uh, 100%. So I think you and I aren't lawyers, but we are accountants and the big thing is we have to be, uh, we have to care about independence, not just in fact, mm-hmm. but independence in appearance. Mm-hmm. And appearances are not looking good here. No. So Richard Durbin, who's the Democratic chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, raised concerns about Rivkin's involvement in the case, basically saying that Rivkin's access to Alito could cast doubt on Alito's ability to fairly discharge his duties in any case in which Mr. Rivkin represents one of the parties. Mm-hmm. So to your point, even if Alito can rise above this in his own personal interest, it doesn't look great. No. At a time when the Supreme Court generally is not looking great. No. But despite all of this, Justice Alito has, in fact, refused to recuse himself. 
good times were had by all. Exactly. So we don't know what's going to happen. Doesn't seem like it's going to be good because again, no reason for them to hear a case just to say we agree with everything the lower court said. Mm. So chances are something's going to be unconstitutional somewhere. It's just a matter of how far reaching that's going to be and how much tax revenue we're going to lose as a result. Oh boy. Does any of our government function the way it's supposed to? Thinking. My my co-host is unwilling to look me in the eye right now. Thinking. Cannot make eye contact. Yeah, I got nothing for you. I Yeah, no, sorry. I'm I'm reluctant to say that no, no branch of government does, but nothing is coming to mind. Can't argue with that. Well, that's all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes of Taxes for the Masses.